it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. Today on the Beer is a Conversation podcast, we have Dave McGill, co-founder of Deep South Brew Co. in Hobart and former general manager and head brewer at Moo Brew. Dave was at Moo Brew for 14 years before launching his own project uh, with a couple of mates. Uh, but this is no ordinary brewing origin story. With Dave's experience in brewing and importantly managing a brewery, as well as his co-founder's hospitality chops. Deep South has been open for a little over a year now, and having launched in the midst of a pandemic, it was a major undertaking. Uh, so thanks for finding some time to come on the Beer is a Conversation podcast, Dave. Hi, Claire. Thanks very much for having me. No worries. A bit chilly down there, is it, Dave? It has been a bit chilly. Yeah, I'm still in shorts <laughs> and a t-shirt, though, so the brewers are tired. So, uh, yeah, oh, it's not course, too bad. <laughs> but you're not like Queensland brewers in their flip-flops. Not quite. No, 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 not quite that uh, that level, but uh, shorts seem to dry out quicker when I spray myself with a hose or get covered in yeast or beer, so it makes it a bit I don't easier. want to see you yeah. in Bodgy Smugglers next, okay? Yeah, no one needs to see that. <laughs> so how's everything been going at Deep South? Ah, uh, yeah, good. Yeah, 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 not too bad. It's, um, yeah, it's definitely been, I think the conversation starting Deep South was, well, hatched nearly three years ago now, so it feels... Uh, Feels like a long time and then, um, yeah, we've been open for just over 12 months and uh, depending on which day of the week you look at that, sometimes it feels like it's flown by and other times it feels like it's uh, it's been 10 years. And you had your one year anniversary party recently, didn't you? Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep, which, um, yeah, ended up uh, in a rather large evening, which was good fun and, um, yeah, managed to get home in the early hours of the morning and wake up to a three-year-old at 8.30 in the morning, which is always the best hangover cure. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, but no, it was good. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of brewers will know that one. Yeah. And I'm glad to see you celebrating as well, because obviously it's been a tricky couple of years. Uh, maybe not as bad in Tassie as in other places, but still not fun. A bit of a challenge. Um, so let's go back to the beginning then. So tell me a little bit more about the beginnings of Deep South. Uh, you obviously wanted a new project after so long at Moobrew, but why was this the one? I remember us talking when we first started chatting about Deep South, and you were like, well, it was either this or leave the industry completely. So what made you really want to go for it? I think everyone in a role that I was in with Moobrew has a limited time frame in, in how long you can spend there, as well as within the Mona group. Um, it's a It's a... Um, sort of high pressure environment and uh, there's always a lot going on um, and I had some young brewers underneath me that, that needed to come through the ranks and so my time was either they were going to leave or I was going to leave basically and uh, and um, for me looking to you know in Tassie if we weren't going to leave Tassie um, there wasn't anywhere else really to go um, from sort of being general manager and head brewer of the, the largest independent um, craft brewery in Tassie so yeah, it was it was a decision process to potentially leave the industry and, and you know use the general management production skills in in another uh, industry or something like that, or or potentially do my own thing. Um, I'd, I'd kind of given up on doing my own thing. We'd had a couple of different uh, sort of stabs at it, but I always knew that when it felt right, it would be the right time. And and uh, yeah, Warwick and and Ben approached me 
yeah, the uh, the investor uh, was the right fit for us, um, and you know the the building was purchased, so we went on a lease agreement and things like that, which has made uh, those kind of decisions um, to do what we did with the building and so forth a bit easier. Um, and uh, they the skill set that the other two business partners bought um, with them um, definitely helped um, the decision making profile as well, because obviously they. You know, one of them can run hospitality and the other one uh, was running the kitchen. Um, we've since lost um, one of our business partners along the way. So that's been um, a massive change for us over the last couple of months, indicative to how hard the, the last sort of 12 to 18 months has actually been. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like we say, you know, you weren't green when you went into this. You knew what running a brewery was like. Did you have any apprehensions before starting, given your knowledge of the industry? Yeah, no, look, I definitely knew it was going to be challenging for sure. We actually have achieved everything that we said we were going to achieve we hit the volume targets we said we were going to achieve we probably ran out of beer a couple of times which we told our distributor was going to happen cash flow has obviously been a major thing obviously having a retail space helps with that cash flow um because obviously as soon as you sell a beer uh the money comes back in but that in itself you know obviously that money comes back in but then it has to pay for the building and wages and kitchen and not just the brewery um so yeah, there's been a lot of, uh, and then obviously then, you know, not been able to turn around and order thirty or $40,000 worth of raw material just to be able to make beer uh, at a whim um, or have that kind of level of stock on hand has definitely made it difficult to, to keep up with the, uh, the demand. And and so, yeah, we're, we're definitely on track now and um, production's in, in full swing and, and we've managed to get to a place where we're not dreading the order coming in from the distributor so uh which has been good but um yeah it was definitely a tricky first 12 months even with the amount of production uh planning and experience that i had um yeah that there's always you know all of a sudden the distributor comes with you and a pub's got to run on your draft for example and they go from ordering three cakes a week to ordering seven or eight cakes a week or 10 cakes a week and that depletes stock levels pretty quickly um, and uh, and then you sort of caught behind the eight ball in uh, the production process and trying to explain to people as well that, you know, beer takes a certain amount of time in tank and uh, there's not much you can do to, to make it go any quicker is um, is definitely um, another been another challenging thing and, and probably a learning for my business partners as well. They're sort of like, ah. Oh, I'm like, yeah, minimum three weeks and four weeks for the lager. And that's <laughs> yeah. the way it rolls. It's so, like, please yeah. give me some acceptable lead times. Tomorrow yes, will not. Just, yeah. And having been at Mowbrew, uh, it didn't have its own venue specifically, although obviously associated with Mona. But how have you found the hospitality side of the business as well and understanding how that works and the challenges around that? Yeah, look, uh, you know, as far as probably on a higher level with the venue every day, staffing has been an absolute nightmare, um, trying to get staff anywhere in Australia. And I'm sure that, you know, everyone that comes on here talks about that same thing. I mean, when I was working in hospital 20 years ago, there's venues that in Tasmania that basically if you can tie your own shoelaces and get to work on time, you've got a job. <laughs> and 20 years ago, those venues, you know, and, and similar type venues, you you had to be a career hospital crew to, to get, even get a look into work in those places. Um, so it's, it's across the board in the industry um, and that's put a lot of pressure on. Chefs especially um, have been super difficult. Uh, you wouldn't think it was that hard to make really good wood-fired pizza, but um, we have an exceptionally good wood-fired pizza chef who is probably as indispensable to the business as me being the only brewer at the moment. At least if I get hit by a bus, another brewer can pick up my brew records and and, and run with it. But um 
yeah, we've uh, struggled to find another pizza chef that's um, going to back up um, the guy that we have at the moment so that he can take some time off or, you know, get hit by a bus or something like that. Hopefully that never happens. And has that been a particular issue in Tasmania? Obviously, like you say, it's Australia-wide, but I imagine there are some pressures quite specific to Tasmania as well. Yeah, for sure. The cost of living in Tasmania, it's a known fact now that Tasmania is quite an expensive place to live, which was never the case. Rent is through the roof. Um, Even finding property at the moment to rent is exceptionally hard. Um, You know, we've seen the homeless rate rise and things like that. And that's sort of probably ruled out those people that could, you know, move from regional areas into the city and and work in hospital and do 20 or 30 hours a week whilst being at uni uh, and still afford a place to live. And if you're not working full time at the moment, basically, or living in a share house with five or six people, it's it's basically just not going to happen in Tassie at the moment. So yeah, it's put a lot of pressure on the on the hospitality industry. Um, there's also been you know a lot of negative sort of press around the hospital industry as well, and people working long hours and not getting treated right. And I think that's probably coming home to roost a little bit um, in the hospital industry. Full stop. Um, and that's something we're trying to change from the inside out. Um, but it will definitely take time. And then lack of international tourists. Um, so lack of those working holiday makers that, you know, have got probably make up that sort of 15 or 20% increase in staff needed over summer. We're just not seeing those. Um, yeah, I mean, Andrew Smith from Willie Smith Cider, you know, even trying to get pickers um, to pick apples, you know, which is obviously a, quite a heavy international contingent. He had to keep them on the farm during COVID um, so that, you know, let them camp or try and put them up in accommodation on the farm um, because they're very time conscious about being able to get those apples off. Um, So, yeah, it's definitely been tough. Yeah, that's right. And it's really interesting that you make the point about making working in hospitality a bit more appealing to people because I know that was a big topic in the industry. The IBA's 10-year roadmap suggests that they want to make Australia's brewing industry an employer of choice uh, so what kind of things are you looking at doing to like attract the, those hospitality staff uh, to Deep South are there things that you know people are after obviously like I imagine higher pay and guaranteed hours or what are you looking at yeah definitely pay obviously uh, is definitely one thing I think working conditions are probably the other thing you know after working in hospitality for a long time there are certain venues that are just hard to work in. And they're normally the high traffic venues um, that have a lot of different people in them. Um, so therefore, there's probably a bit more tension in, in the scene and um, bartenders probably cop a little bit more abuse in some of those higher traffic, busier areas. So for us, what we've tried to do is make Deep South uh, a much more sort of hospitality space and not just a brew pub. Um and then further education. You know, a lot of the staff are really looking towards uh, learning more about the products, um, and that's where, you know, they can sort of come into the brewery and have a chat with me. And um, we've got a lot of good distributors down here with spirits, and um, you know, we're working with a, a guy who's got a lot of cocktail experience, so he's been designing the cocktail menu. I think it's probably accessing the areas that we don't have experience in, and then making sure that we can get those staff the education that they need in order to keep them interested and motivated to come to work just so they're not coming to work, pouring beers, serving pizza and going home again. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely uh, something that we sort of work towards and, you know, we don't open past 12 and, you know, we try and uh, we try and make sure that it's a, a bit more of a hospitable environment for, for the staff as well. 
I think that's a really interesting point because I actually saw a job advert for The Woods. It's like a craft beer bar up in Brizzy uh, the other day. And the highlight of the job ad, you know, how they advertised themselves to potential hospitality staff was that they said that they closed at an acceptable hour, um, you know, it's not an all-night hospitality gig kind of thing. Breweries already have that going for them. Uh, a lot of the time, they are limited in their licenses or wanting to focus on brewing rather than being that um, all-night hospitality venue. And that's really attractive uh, for potential employees who've got a lot else going on. Uh, that's an interesting point as well. And I wonder if it's worth us as an industry looking at to be a bit more holistic about how we advertise ourselves and think about that aspect Um I don't know. I'll go to the IBA and I'll tell them my grant plans. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's a, it's definitely a thing. You know, I, I I started working as a bouncer when I was seventeen years old, and uh, just before I turned eighteen. And you know, in the early days, I would go weekends without seeing daylight. I'd finish work at five or six o'clock in the morning, sleep all day, get up and do it again. Um, it did really well to ruin my body clock and set me up to be a brewer for working long hours, but. Um, you know, those days are very limited uh, on on what you, how you can sort of maintain that level. Um, and I did it for, for too long, probably. And you know, as soon as you start to grow up a little bit and get a partner who probably doesn't uh, work the same hours, uh, something that you never noticed before becomes something really noticeable. Um, and that's why we see a lot of people, especially chefs, leave the industry. You know, they get to a point where they've got kids or um, their partner's got a nine to five job and. And they and they sort of realise that working from two or three o'clock in the afternoon or ten o'clock at night is uh, is not conducive to having um, a good home life, really. So, um, yeah, we've got to make it more appealing, and and we you know we don't do split shifts here or anything like that um, for that reason to make sure that um, they can sort of get home and and uh, spend some time with their family or do whatever they want to do, really. Yes, absolutely. I mean. All of these things are really fascinating issues that the brewing industry is dealing with as not just brewers, but not just manufacturers of beer, but also as operators of venues and hospitality venues. We've obviously seen a lot in the past sort of five to 10 years uh, that people are going down that multi-venue route. Uh, The challenges that come up with that, I'm sure you're well aware of, Dave. Is that something that you'd ever consider opening um, opening up another venue? Or are you like, what are you talking about, Claire? That's insane. Oh, yeah, we definitely, I don't think, I don't think I never, I don't think I'm ever going to build another brewery. Um, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> I've been lucky enough to see a few of them now. And if we did, we it depends on, on when you catch us. Uh, if we did, it would probably be a broader tourism based venue that probably didn't involve hospitality, probably more so accommodation um, uh, in, you know, focused on larger groups or something like that. But Hospitality um, at the moment, uh, this one will this one will definitely do for us, um, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll sort of let it let it sit, settle for a little while now. And um, it's not out of the question though; like it hasn't been out of the question. But uh, it, we couldn't do it in the current structure of our business as well. You'd, you'd need another, uh, you know, couple. Of, I mean, one of my business partner Warwick, uh, he owns the Tassie Inn just around the corner as well, so. So, um, which I don't have anything to do with, but um, he's sole owner of that now as well. So, yeah, he's he's stretched across both businesses. Um, so, for for us to do something else, it would be probably something a little bit more hands off. I think a lot of people are feeling this pressure, so it's an interesting one. As we say, lots of people looking to that venue model, a lot of brew pubs in particular. Um, and we do our brewery radar, which follows all the breweries and planning. And we've got, I think, 
at least 100 on that um, that are at various stages of development from, you know, we've trademarked it, that it's it's an idea all the way to we've done everything but commissioned the, the brew house um, and, and opened the doors. What do you think these businesses need to know to make it in the industry today, <laughs> apart from don't do it? You just got to make sure you don't overcapitalize, I think is the real key. Um, be really realistic about what you want the venue to be. Um, we're heavy, heavy, heavily capitalized here. Um, but we also have a venue that can, you know, push two or 300 people a day through if we do two sittings. Um, so uh, that sort of helps a lot. But yeah, you need to be realistic about, you know, like Brad Rogers told me a long, long time ago, you probably got to um, make half as much of what you think um, and it's going to cost twice as much as what you think, um, which is probably sort of where it sits. It needs to be owner-operated, I think. The idea of thinking that you're not going to be able to be involved for you know, 50 or 60 or 70 hours a week in those venues for the first sort of two years or three years of his existence is um, is naive. So I think you need to really expect that you'll be um, involved heavily. And, and, and if that is a brewer looking to then open a hospitality space, they're going to have to learn a lot about hospital because there's a lot of brewers who have always been brewers. Um, and just because you like going out and eating at restaurants and drinking in bars doesn't set you up for for being good at actually working in hospa so um it's uh it's a definitely a different skill set that's for sure so do you think we've got room to maneuver we've got all these new breweries coming in i think so um you know we had overland open just up the road from us uh recently and those guys are you know um done a really good job and we were super excited about those guys opening up um and i think more regional areas i you know like I, I feel that there's probably more scope in regional areas um for these kind of venues um than what there is probably in the cbds now like you know you'd have to say that marrickville despite there's still breweries opening quite a bit up in there is nearly at a saturation point um and again that's where that sort of overcapitalizing comes into it you know like you need to be aware that you're sort of coming in and competing against some pretty hot competitors who have been there for a really long time and People, be, you know, people are becoming quite loyal in those areas to their own venues and things like that as well. So, yeah, I think there's room. I think um, what it will do is probably breed some innovation and and, and opening hours and, and how you treat um, the space that you've got. So, you know, maybe they're not seven-day uh, operations. Maybe they're only Friday, Saturdays, and you get some food trucks in or you do something like that, which we're seeing which then alleviates a lot of the cost on having to build kitchens and deal with staff and things like that. So I think that's probably what we'll see. We'll probably see a change in the model where you don't just do, you know, restaurant, pub, brewery, and then um, and then expect everyone to come in, in droves. So um, it'll be minimising your exposure, I think, while still giving people access to the to the venue and, and all the cool stuff about brewing. We had a lady come in the other day. Um, she's like, I've been here three times and I didn't even realise there's a brewery at the back. So, How do you manage to reverse that? Yeah, I'm not quite sure. But um, yeah, so I guess that's a good thing. I guess that's, um, you know, there's still a level of discovery there for it. Absolutely. And we talk about the rise of the brew pub. Rather than just a production venue, um, we've seen that change for a lot of reasons. Uh, we've touched on distribution as well. So do you think there is room for any more production breweries or is distribution too difficult? And what do you guys do at Deep South? What's your approach to that external retail side of things? Yeah, look, I mean, Stomping Ground are a pretty amazing model of being able to punch a lot of volume out and still have um, into the distribution channels and still have such an amazing venue. They're probably the, the poster child for that. 
um, felons have, you know, just started uh, talking to Tom Champion. They've just started distribution after, you know, being heavily involved in on-premise for a long time. We Distribution was always on the cards for us. Uh, this brewery will only ever do 250,000 litres a year, so it's just a little brewery. And, and once it's done, there'll be no more expansion plans or all the math was done around that. So if we could do that across... Um, across distribution and obviously on-premise, then that'll suit really well. Distribution's really hard. Um, the models are really hard. The margins are really hard. And telling your story in such a cluttered uh, part of the industry is, is really hard. You know, um, contract counting's been a wonderful thing, um, but it is definitely, I mean, everyone's seen a fridge with craft beer in it. Um, it's, um, you know, now you started as a fridge and now it's basically an entire wall and so the margins are really tight for the breweries uh, we've just gone in so we've just put all four of our core styles into can uh, we started in six packs we're probably going to move to four packs um, because we're seeing them at sort of 29 dollars a six pack and just that barrier for people um, to spend 30 dollars on a six pack of beer now you know that five or ten years ago that probably wouldn't have been a problem at all uh, and it was probably a little bit remiss of us to think that the margin that bottle shops are putting on is the same as what they're putting on a four pack, um, is what they're saying, is what they're putting on a six pack. So that's probably bumped the six pack price up to something that I guess the most of the consumers at the moment are not comfortable in, in having one purchase and that being that sort of $29.99, whereas $22 for a four pack or something like that is probably more accessible um, for the consumer. So yeah, we're probably going to look to shift pretty quickly on that where um, we've only been out in pack for a couple of weeks so uh and that's something that um yeah we've been working with our distributor we use an external distributor down here and so we've been working with those guys on that um but it, it, it's a very competitive realm at the moment for, for the bottle shops and for the breweries themselves um and so uh there's you know, there's um a lot of noise um there and you know obviously the bigger uh internationally owned brands have you know got their own craft brands now as well which sit there and 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 they are very competitive on price and i don't think that's a bad thing um but it definitely complicates um what the retail space is for everyone involved at the moment definitely and i think it's always really important to be cognizant of the market that you're selling into uh obviously things like the rise of inflation it's really putting pressure on people and i guess that might mean like higher abv or more expensive ingredients which push the prices up uh for consumers you know, having another option to those bigger beers is potentially a good idea. But what's your core range at the minute, Dave? Talk me through. Uh, so we do a draft, uh, which is our lager, and then we do a pale, an XPA, and an IPA. Um, so, you know, pretty stock standard sort of core range. And then we do some of the more limited release stuff uh, within the brewery itself. And it's funny, you know, like the draft is probably the biggest seller in our venue, um, but not... Um, in retail um, and the XBA actually funnily enough okay. I didn't even want to call it an XBA because um, because <laughs> I love Boulder XBA so much but um, yeah. it is what it is and, and that's the and I remember you know it's lighting colour and fruity and uh, so that was sort of where we landed but that, that's probably been the most popular since we've hit the market with, with cans um, so again you know that's you know yet we had a, an event in here on Saturday night and the draft outsold the rest of the styles nearly three to one um, that's crazy yeah so i guess to be expected though yeah it's interesting to see what translates uh from the venue because what we're seeing in the venue and the reason why the draft existed was 
the people that are paying the bills for Deep South are not craft beer aficionados or um, keyboard warriors or anything like that that love their full-blown craft beer. We get them in and that's great and we've got something for them. But the people that are paying the bills are the ones that um, come in and have a pizza with their family and have a couple of drafts and um, maybe move on to the pail because they're feeling a little bit excited after a couple of pints of draft and 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 they sort of experience a different flavor profile to what they otherwise would whereas in retail uh, you don't get that opportunistic buyer as much you know that person that's going in to buy um, craft beer normally has a fair idea about their styles and, and what they want to buy um, whereas you know uh, we get a lot of people who are in this venue because it's someone else's birthday or they just you know they just wanted to check it out so yeah we see it it's much different on what we see go over the taps as what we see in retail. Mm-hmm. It was interesting that you mentioned earlier that you'd already given yourself a cap for the volumes you guys would be making at the brewery and that there's not much more room for expansion. Um, that's not usually the case. So what was the thought process behind that? And and then I'd like to talk about the development process because I know in Tassie is an interesting one. Um, but yeah, what was the thinking behind um, the cap on the brewery? I, I've seen and I know firsthand that next level of expansion and and what that takes on brewers are really hard to find in tassie so i'm I'm still just in the brewery by myself um i reckon i'm probably good solo for maybe 150,000 liters a year or something like that before um before we have to get someone else on and and look to be honest if we could sort of hit those volumes i'd rather get someone with experience on um and you know that can sort of jump hit the ground running straight away um yeah the cap um, selling, I, I feel that that's a comfortable volume with the margins that we make over the retail space and um, with our presence in Tassie um, that doesn't require the next level of um, infrastructure, sending it to the mainland, worrying about stock uh, going off. Um, you know, it was different. It's nearly $400 to get a pallet across to the mainland at the moment refrigerated, uh, you know, with nine kegs and some cartons on top. You know, it's probably mid-300s or something. So all of a sudden... You could be $120 a keg in just freight and logistics to land it into a venue in Melbourne. And, you know, that was okay 10 years ago when there wasn't as many breweries in Melbourne and so forth. But you can't expect now for someone to pay an extra $120 a keg over what, you know, some of the quality venues and breweries there are in Melbourne now. Like, I mean, the quality of the craft beer industry has just gone through the roof and and the price uh, point is sharp so um, it makes it much more difficult to send beer from Tassie across to the mainland for sure and so if we can look after the volume in here um, keep the staff to a minimum um, the brewery's designed uh, to be a one-person show so whether that's me or somebody else a brew day can be done in 10 hours a double brew day so you're sort of out the door which is really good um and so yeah i think that's sort of where we'll leave it uh, i think the next stage after that is you go from that to you know you need to hit a million liters pretty quickly is sort of that golden number from experience and and then all of a sudden the cost of production becomes lower and and you start to make savings that way um and uh but yeah that you know that requires a sales team and national distribution and you know all the things that um 
difficult to set up nowadays. Okay, so setting up a brewery in Tassie. Uh, I know our States of Brewing report earlier in the year, which you very kindly provided some background and commentary for. We were talking about the potential difficulties in setting up in Tassie, uh, planning issues, local councils, um, all that kind of business. Uh, so what were some of the big challenges when you were setting up, which I know feels like we're going back to the beginning again, but I was really keen to talk about it. We had some good things and some bad things uh, in Tassie. The thing that we probably did the best was um, get an engineering firm to do the DA. So our DA um, had involved a change of use. The due diligence on buying the building required um, the the change of use to be uh, granted. So we were, yeah, we were probably eighteen or twenty thousand dollars in the hole before we even knew what whether or not we were going to get the building or not. That was just in order for the for the DA to go through and the change of use. And that's everything from, you know, electrical to plumbing to uh, that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, that was... But then having that person talk to the council versus having a brewer uh, or an investor try and fumble their way through um, the paperwork, which then wastes the time for the person in the government that's trying to make a decision for you, which they get super narky about having the having the ability for the um for the engineers to talk to them uh i think alleviated quite a bit of our uh issues in that way um and then it's getting these people's head around what a brewery is what it does um and the impact it has on you know the surroundings um so noise odor trade waste power um all those kind of things were definitely taken into account um Taz Water were the first uh, contractors I had through this place before we even bought the building um, because I knew that tradeways would be something that we had to really nail uh, so is that because it's you know it can be a total showstopper it can just be a big black hole that you throw money into and it never gets uh, never works properly so we also don't have any apron our entire space uh, is internal so my tradeway sits underneath um, the slab that people sit over the top of um, and eat dinner so you can't exactly have a typical smelling tradeway system uh, while people are trying to smell your beer and eat pizza. And then, you know, uh, we had the natural gas, for example, that came uh, up for us. They cut Argyle Street up, which is a main arterial road in Hobart. They cut that up for free and plumbed the gas straight to the building. Uh, We had to move a power pole that was going to be condemned anyway out the front. Um, But uh, because we had to upgrade the power, but in excess of like thirty or forty thousand dollars later, then um, so the the difference in the ability to work with some of the government entities was uh, varied considerably, um, and understanding the government outsourcing these primary industries to you know private contractors and private companies was a bit of a minefield to work to work through that. Yeah, so that sounds quite tricky. That one. <laughs> uh, so knowing what you know now um, about the whole development process. Would you do it the same way again? Uh, I think I would. Uh, I, I, like, <laughs> that's cool. No, that's um, yeah, I think uh, there's a couple of things on probably the selection of the building that I would do differently. Um, and there's a, probably a little bit more due diligence that I would do uh, knowing what I know now. Um, and that can be like levels of connection to sewer, uh, which we had issues with because the trade waste pit ended up nearly a metre and a half below uh, ground level, which then our sewer connection, for example, uh, didn't have the right fall on it. Um, and then so we had to join into the footpath. And then as soon as you lose the 
boundary of your building. I'm going to bore everyone. But as soon as you leave the boundary of your building. That's cool. No, that's good. (laughs) This is the nitty gritty. (laughs) That becomes another contractor's issue that you have no control over. So then TAS Water puts that out to tender. And then, you know, so there's all those things. So I think probably the due diligence or the building, I think, would probably be where I would. I would never change the fact that we used, I think the engineering company definitely saved us a lot. And I think that there's Tassie, Hobart City Council have a little bit more exposure now um, and zoning appropriate uh, guidelines around breweries and brew pubs within um, built up areas. So, you know, obviously Hobart Brewing Company and Shambles and T-Bone and um, those kind of places um, have definitely helped pave the way for that. That's for sure. That's fantastic. On the government front, we talked about COVID and there has been the sense that uh, in Tasmania, like in Western Australia and a couple of other states, sort of been protected from COVID in a certain sense uh, in terms of lockdowns and things like that. Maybe not as frequent, uh, especially during that first year or two period. Um, How did you guys find that? Did you see any sort of direct impacts from having to set up and having your first year of business during a year when we were still very concerned about COVID? For sure. Yeah, look, the idea of them not not opening the borders was good in the sense that there was high confidence in, in in people going out and obviously being in North Hobart, uh, we're probably a little bit more local based than, than being on the waterfront and, and sort of tourism based. So that was, that was good for us to sort of see that. The really disappointing thing was how they went about, uh, opening the borders and probably the lack of, uh, communication around what was going to happen. I mean, we had a guy enter Tasmania, with COVID or break out of hotel quarantine in November with COVID, went and uh, smoked some weed with his mates in a in a suburb and and then got locked down again. And we got locked down at three o'clock on a Friday afternoon for the just for the weekend, uh, which probably cost our business thirty or forty grand. Uh, which and then less than four weeks later, they just turned around and went, oh, you know what, borders are open, free for all, let's go. And so. You know, that, that just doesn't, the logic behind that just didn't really make a lot of sense to us. Um, because then as soon as they did open the borders and we got a spike of COVID, um, you know, sort of December, January, uh, everyone in Tassie, because, you know, no one really had it or known too many people that had had it. So everyone just stopped coming out from fear. So January, we did more in the last weekend and we were open in December than what we did for the entire month of January. Uh, and February wasn't too dissimilar. Uh, March definitely hurt. So we lost, you know, what would have been three months of our most solid trade uh, probably got bundled up into maybe two weeks of December um, on a revenue sort of basis. So that definitely uh, hurt a lot. Um, And again, you know, staff, you know, a lot of people were having to close their business because of the isolation rules. Um, So, you know, um, that was was definitely tough. Uh, Sometimes... Yeah, uh, venues couldn't open, and that's happening at the moment, still down here and no doubt all over Australia. Um, but um, yeah, so that was hard uh, to deal with, and there was, you know, uh, not a lot of communication from the government around how that was going to unfold and and what it was going to look like for, for venues. So um, yeah, we had, I think the last Friday before Christmas, we had 300 and something booked for a day on a Friday and then the first Friday in January we had 12 people booked um so yeah it was it was definitely um tough but I again uh we were very lucky and I'm not uh 
going to say that we even went through half of what Victoria and New South Wales and stuff like that have gone through. So, uh, yeah, we were super lucky, um, I think, in as a whole, in the majority of it. Yeah, that always shocked me too because we were the same in Queensland. It's like you've had two years to figure this out. What what we're doing? Like, what were you doing? Uh, kicking back, making sourdough? <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah, we actually we actually make quite a bit of sourdough pizza dough here. Actually, so we're very COVID happy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll I'll have a taste of that. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I'm interested in state specific experiences of COVID and how they felt that the state government dealt with it. I think it was just so different across the board that it really has impacted businesses in very different ways between the states. Um, but in some ways, I guess Tassie is a great place to be a brewery. And I know that there's been some movement, um, for instance, on skills. So there's the fermentation course at the University of Tasmania, for instance. What's been going on with that? Have you been involved? Uh, yeah, so Ferment Tas uh, sort of have um, been pushing pretty hard and uh, and I think they're, they're sort of hooking up with the IBD and, and UTAS and, um, you know, Jack Viney from Moobrew is heavily involved in that as well, I think. Yeah, they're looking to sort of offer that course, uh, which would be great and hopefully... You know, if it works down here, then it's something that can roll out um, across Australia as well. Uh, we've had some of the ferment crew um, that have been doing it, sort of the, the ferment TAS course um, through UTAS, um, which is not as specific beer related. It's more across everything, cheese and wine and um, cured meats and things like that. We've had quite a few of them through the brewery and, um, you know, they're all energetic people that are, you know, super keen to get into the industry and, uh, having this little bit of a head start um, is definitely going to help because, you know, speaking from experience as a one-person show, for me to train someone at the moment with how busy I am, it's just easier for me to do it myself. It's quicker, it's faster. Um, and whereas with Moobrew, I, I had the luxury of having other brewers that could then, you know, develop pathways for younger brewers to come up through the ranks um, here. And, a, and I guess a lot with sort of breweries of a similar size, a lot of the time, the brewers just don't have the time to be training people. Um, it's also a dangerous environment to work in if you've never sort of been in one of those environments. Um, everything from manual handling to gas to, you know, um, hot stuff. So um, there's a lot of those sort of things that hopefully these courses can give people an understanding so that when they come into the into the space, the brewers are a little bit more confident that they're not going to um, hurt themselves or, you know, they, they know a little bit more about what they're in for, um, which then will help those people get into the industry easier. Yeah, and it really says a lot that it's been quite self-starting in Tasmania to get involved with these sorts of programs and get them off the ground. I know we say it all the time, like throughout Australia, how collegiate the industry is and how everyone gets on and shares knowledge and stuff like that. And sometimes it's absolutely true. Uh, And sometimes I'm like, "Mm, sure about that. Uh, (laughs) But in Tassie, it does seem to be very much the case. Uh, You've obviously been in the industry for so long, you probably know everyone there anyway. But is that what you found having like gone out on your own? Is that is that what the situation is? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if I if I know everyone anymore. It, it developed so quickly, uh, and I've been quite insular in in what I've been doing for the last. My phone doesn't ring anywhere near as much, uh, which is a which is a good thing. And I've also gone from being sort of the you know the biggest fish in the pond and and being able to do favors for for a lot of brewers to being a very little fish in a pond and, and being able to work with brewers and ask to go and borrow malt and hops and things like that. So. Uh, it's actually been really refreshing to, um, you know, there's been a lot of people that have um, helped me out. Um, and um, I worked at Shambles for a little while uh, when I when we were building this place and I was without an income. Um, and, uh, you know, so we've had 
you know, really good experiences that way. And um, it's been, um, yeah, it's, it's been really good. I guess sometimes in Tassie, some of the problems with the industry is it becomes quite insular and uh, the willingness for some of the brewers to leave the island and, and go to events on the mainland um, and sort of further their uh, knowledge um, has probably been a little bit limited and that's something I'd probably like to see more of. Um, and, uh, you know, being more accepting of, of things that come down here, whether that be yeast workshops or whatever it might be, uh, probably seeing a, a higher take up from, from brewers. Um, you know, tigers always hunt best where they're hungry and, and Tassie's nice and insular. And so I guess a lot of the brewers are sort of happy to continue on doing what they do. But, um, the knowledge and the experience that's, uh, that's out there in some of the events, you know, like Brewcon and a few of those kind of things and, even good beer weeks and stuff, they're just worth their weight in gold. You just can't, um, you can't put a bottom dollar figure on what it's like to be able to go and have a conversation with Scotty Hargraves over a beer with from Bolt, you know, like or Richard Watkins or you know those kind of people. Uh, that just the average conversation about how they clean tanks or how they kettle sour or whatever they do, like those conversations over a beer, uh, you, you don't get in textbooks. So um, yeah, it's definitely worthwhile getting off the island you made an interesting point there that you've gone from like being the big fish uh to an owner operator of a startup um has that transition been hard uh for the ego or anything else uh not for the ego <laughs> i don't think it's been good to be back on the tools um yeah, nice. uh, it's probably actually it's probably been a little bit hard i've probably been more reluctant to ask uh for for favors than i probably should have been um and i'm probably martyring myself a little bit in in the hours in the brewery and, and things like that um in order to probably prove to myself more so than anything else that that we can make this work and i can get it done so um yeah it's been good in in some ways and definitely challenging in you know it's probably been a little bit more isolating i spent a lot of time just in the brewery by myself um you know which uh which has its pros and cons but um yeah it's definitely um the pressure was not lost on me when I opened my own venue because there was obviously a lot of it was the worst kept secret for a long period of time and uh, and um, it was always going to be scrutinised that's for sure um, so I guess I'm just trying to work my hardest to make sure that the beer quality is good and uh, and that I'm true to what I set out to do in the first place really I think you've probably earned a few favours though Dave so. You make sure you call them in. I've definitely called a few of those in, that's for sure. <laughs> we talked very briefly off air as well, just about family life and how much kind of like pressure setting up your own business puts on that. Uh, I did an article a few weeks ago and it was talking about being a parent in the brewing industry. Uh, it looks hard, uh, especially when you're in that position when, where you're in now, uh, where you're kind of the only person that can do your job in that business. Uh, you haven't got others that you can say like, all right, can you work? for this week while I go look after my partner or look after my kid or whatever you need to do. Uh, how has that been in comparison to, to when you were at Moobrew? No, no, I definitely had more time at Moobrew, you know, uh, for sure. And, uh, you know, we've we've got another uh, a little one on the way due in October and, and the planning production-wise uh, and, you know, for me to be able to take a certain amount of time off and obviously – You'd love to be able to take, you know, six weeks off or something like that when you've got a new child, and and that was something that was possible at Moobrew. Um, but this time around, that's probably just not going to be possible. And so, um, 
I guess having your own business offers the flexibility to be able to brew whenever I need to. Um, so that helps um, because you're not reliant on you know other people that have got their lives to live and you need to mash in at 6 a.m. Um, so is the, the next brewer that's coming through who also has a family can mash in at 2 p.m. or whatever it might be. But yeah, it's something that needs to be spoken about it within the industry probably more so as well because it's definitely been the highest level of pressure I've ever felt ever um, where... The other thing is you can't walk away. Like um, there is no out now. Um, I can't just turn around and leave the business, the financial responsibilities I have to the business partners uh, and to the investor. It means that um, this is it. Uh, the flexibility that you have when you're employed by someone else means I just go get another job. You know, like I see ads, and I'm like, oh, I could go, I could go be a brewer of the Northern Rivers, or I could go and be a brewer somewhere else. And and that was. That was always a possibility uh, when you work for somebody else, but now that's no longer a possibility and that brings with it uh, a level of pressure uh, that's that's translated to your family um, that's probably greater than any other pressure I've had here. I don't mind doing long hours. The work part's easy um, because I know that it's I can get it done. Um, the home stuff, when you get home half an hour before your daughter goes to bed and that's basically the extent of what you've seen her the entire day, that's the tough stuff, I reckon. That's the bit where industry, I think, and those small business, and obviously not just in the brewing industry, but across any kind of uh, industry, it definitely makes it tough, that's for sure. Yeah, that's it. And I think you're right. It's, it's something that's not really discussed as much as it should be. I think there's almost an expectation that you should have uh, to go through regardless. You shouldn't have to sacrifice your home life or your personal life for the job. There's obviously going to be some element of sacrifice in any job, but you know, you want more than a couple of days off with your newborn baby and stuff like that. The article I wrote was um, particularly talking about women and talking to women, uh, but I spoke to a couple of blokes about it as well. Uh, there's definitely a gender divide there because people expect women to go on maternity and men, on the other hand, it's basically not expected. Uh, there's no expectation that they should and... Not that it's seen as weird, but it's not weird if they don't, if you see what I mean, um, which seems very unfair. Yeah, yeah, look, most definitely. Um, you know, I, my, when I sort of said to my wife that I'd, got, I'd taken six weeks off with Moobrew uh, when my daughter was born, she's like, you didn't. And I was like, what? I was like, I'm sure I did. And she's like, oh, no, you were sort of, you know, back a couple of days and, and this kind of stuff. And, and my, so what my... And that was only three years ago. So, so what my recollection of that was versus what her recollection was uh, seemed to be somewhat different. Um, and so, um, I, I probably trust her recollection of it more so than mine. But um, and it, yeah, look, it's it's definitely tough about that uh, the whole situation um, because all of a sudden you feel like you're failing at home and then not giving the business the same attention that it needs as well and if, you, if that becomes uh your headspace and if, you, if you're in your head that way then um that can lead to you know sort of some serious mental health issues that need to be talked about and i guess these kind of podcasts and being able to talk about it and be open about it and um you know like don't get me wrong i'm super privileged to be in the industry that i'm at i'm in and very lucky to be have the job i have but yeah it you're not whinging i don't think if you talk about uh the different pressures that you have um, you know, both in and out of your business, that's for sure. So I think the more we talk about it, the, the better it's going to be for everyone. And uh, it doesn't have to be, um, you know, that's where I think being able to ring other brewers or have that network um, helps, you know, because people get uh, different 
pressures, you know, like stuck mashes or, you know, whatever it might be that all of a sudden add hours to your day. Um, so, and then that takes hours away from your family and then that puts pressure on your partner. And yeah, it's definitely a, um, a snowball effect that can get quite out of hand if it's not sort of looked after, I don't think. And I think the ability to pick up the phone and say, you know, I'm having trouble with this, whether it is trying to balance your home and work life or whether it's something really technical that you need a hand with, that's some of the beauty of this industry compared to other industries. And we should absolutely tap into those networks more if we can, you know, not just even so we don't feel alone, um, just so that we know that there are people there to support you and everyone and that you aren't there by yourself um that's really key especially like you say when you're kind of doing it by yourself and lots of smaller operators will definitely feel that compared to potentially a bigger business yeah but i've already taken up a load of your time and can i just say uh congratulations on the new baby coming uh thank you very much that'd be number one in the future i imagine um but what else is in the future for dave oh look just trying to hold on really i think um (laughs) yeah we're just um (laughs) Uh, yeah, look, uh, you know, we've got some probably some more focus on uh, the venue again um, and some different stuff that we're going to do within the venue, which would be great. And sort of keep developing the beers. Obviously, they're all in can now as well. So um, sort of the packaging side of things has, has taken up a bit of time. Um, and uh, yeah, just try and uh, get enough sort of, you know, for me, the future proofing for my time is to be able to get enough stock on hand um, in order to be able to take a little bit of time off in October and and spend some time with my family and, and then not be uh, hand to mouth as far as, um, you know, as far as stock is concerned and things like that. So trying to get the business into a point where um, it becomes a little bit more manageable and it's much more of a routine, um, which has sort of happened over the last sort of six or seven weeks. We've sort of, you know, brew pack, brew pack, you know, so things have been working a little bit better that way. Um, so it's, it'll be good to sort of enjoy that a little bit, um, as opposed to the chaos that is the first year of trying to still develop recipes and iron out brew houses and, you know, procedures and things like that. So, um, yeah, just try and lock it down for a little while, I think. Well, thank you so much, Dave, for coming on the Beer is a Conversation podcast. Really appreciate it. Always love hearing from you and about Tazzy and hopefully you'll come on again and let us know how everything's going on. Anytime. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for all the work you do. Appreciate it.